Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We've seen dramatic movements in quoted biotech companies over the past year, but what's really going on in the industry? Sunil Shah from O2H returns to talk about where unquoted biotech valuations are at, where capital is going, and how the industry is evolving. He gives a great reality check on what is really going on behind their headlines. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services from the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmanandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So I'd like to welcome back today Sunil Shah, who is Managing Partner at O2H Ventures. Welcome back, Sunil. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So those of you with good memories will remember that Sunil was back was with us back on episode 19, which is kind of like 18 months ago. But we thought it would be good to get an update on what's happening in the world of biotech. But as usual, can we start with learning a little bit more about you in case people missed the last episode? How dare they? How do you get involved in venture capital? So I've been involved in venture capital. I've been an investor really since around, since I was a kid investing in shares. But as a VC per se, I've been uh, investing in biotech since around 2013 as part of the, an angel group called Cambridge Angels. And obviously as an angel myself into biotech individually. And then this sort of morphed into a fund uh, in 2000 and about three years ago, essentially. So I've been investing from a venture capital fund, which is a fund that I started along with Prashant, my brother, about three, three and a half or four years ago. So, um, and we, we're focused very much on biotech and biotech therapeutics, and it's kind of been our niche area. So we're a, we're a niche fund provider, really. Yep. And the fund is O2H. So tell us a little bit about more about O2H and, and kind of what it does. So O2H Ventures is a tax-efficient fund. So it's uh, we have two funds. We have a knowledge-intensive fund and an SEIS fund. Uh, the knowledge-intensive is basically an EIS fund with on steroids, so you get a bit more predictability on your tax and you're allowed to invest greater sums of money and get the EIS benefits. Um, and the SEIS is much smaller quantities, very much earlier, first money into a company, but you know the quantum can be very, very small. So those are the two fund structures. And, and O2H is a group. We have around... 350 scientists employed across the company. In UK, where I am today, uh, we have a, a small science park in Cambridge, and we have a larger group in India doing chemistry and biology services for various biotech and pharma. Uh, but that keeps me very, very connected into the ecosystem and what's going on and who's working on what and uh, and allows us to pick up quite a nice deal flow through that ecosystem we've built up in biotech. So, you know, we're based in the UK, in Cambridge, um, we're very much at the middle of, I would say, of biotech and, and what's going on. And we try to connect the dots as much as possible into the US and obviously into India as well, and to try to find good opportunities and develop them through our UK biotech ecosystem. Personally, I'm also, apart from being on the board of Cambridge Angels, I'm also a board member of the BIA, which is the Biotech Industry Association, member of the ISA, and on obviously several boards of our portfolio companies, which are in the biotech therapeutic space. Yeah. And since we spoke last time, you had a co-working space that was kind of about to open, I think. Um, You mentioned Science Park. It's obviously now open. Post-COVID, how's that going? Well, we've got a number of people here. Definitely have got office space where they turn up every day. It's another thing. But, you know, we have, we probably have, it's a a lovely space, central Cambridge. Uh, We originally bought a 2.7 acre plot with two grade two listed buildings on on it and a third, which is in the facility, which is Council's grade two listed. 
And we uh, furthermore, we've bought the adjacent plot and the idea is to build uh, biology labs in central Cambridge, really, and we have office space for biotech. So we allow, it helps us to, uh, after we invest in a company or even when we're thinking about investing in a company to incubate, to mentor some of these more fledgling portfolio companies when they're, when they're starting out with young founders and to try to you know, leverage our time across a larger group of companies to help support them into the next stage, really. So that's the idea behind it in, mm-hmm. in principle. Um, but we're, we're very lucky with the location. It's right, it's, it's very like a couple of miles from the centre, very close to the AstraZeneca building, which is just a sort of a 10-minute bike ride. And, uh, and we have the river cam that runs through the middle of the site. So it's a very, it's a very beautiful, scenic place that we have here. So. That sounds very civilised. <laughs> I, I could be jealous. <laughs> so... Since we spoke, we've seen quite a lot of drama in markets and and in biotech. So in the past year, uh, the NASDAQ biotech index is down about 30%, which is kind of fairly dramatic move in market terms. But I'm not sure that really portrays the whole story. So although it's a quoted side of things, I'm saying that as a frame for sort of kicking off what's happening in biotech. That's a, that's a good point. So I think, interestingly, just to quote the uh, roughly how the X, the XBI is the main biotech index in in uh, on the US markets, which I kind of follow. It amalgamates some of the you know the larger biotechs, etc. But gives you a good indication of what's going on. And if I compare it against the tech heavy Nasdaq, which still has a lot of the biotech in there, by the way, then um, the XBI is something like thirty percent off its lows. It's still got a long way to go up because it was probably hammered around 50% or so, but it but it, it has come up quite a bit and it's um, it was maybe 50% off its lows as of uh, a few weeks back, so it's come dropped back a little bit. Um, but I have seen the biotechs, you know, start in my own portfolio that I have in my PA personal account have, have started to drift upwards. And if I compare that against the tech-heavy Nasdaq, is only around 10% off the lows. So I think the biotech has fared better. And the question is then, why Why is the biotech? And, I, and God, no, I haven't actually analyzed if the 10% that performed, that has lifted the NASDAQ, <laughs> they could actually be the biotechs that lifted it up. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I, th- I think the, the, the key point is that um, biotech has come a long way since the early days of British biotech, which I'm sure we all remember. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the companies, the technologies, the platforms, We've become better at predicting whether uh, something at an early stage could be a drug or not. So I, I do feel that we have much more insight and knowledge into developing drugs with greater confidence. And, and maybe the risk is a lot less than it was 15, 20 years ago. At the same time, um, there's a number of new technologies that have appeared in the biotech space um, and modalities that have allowed us to really explore new areas for therapeutics. So I think that's one of the reasons. Second reason I feel is that Post-COVID, actually, there's been a huge interest in, in biology and a lot of investors have really um, educated themselves around various pockets of biology and, and how it can support you know, mankind and, uh, and their sort of personal portfolio as well at the same time. So I think that people understand that in biotech, we're creating real products that can be used by patients for the well-being of, of, of human health. And they have seen that come through in COVID in record time. And I think they're generally being quite impressed by that. Well, I think with the technology business, people, there's an understanding that people can switch very easily between one application and another and another, maybe not so easily, but there is a, 
you know why you know why use one application over a technology platform it's, it's quite easy to sort of move around whereas when you develop a therapeutic product generally you have a very long patent life it's, it's, a, it's a significant barrier to entry when developing a product so although obviously the risk of developing that product is is high and you mm-hmm. can mitigate the risk through portfolio etc but you know we are developing biotech very real products which i think over the last 10 15 years we've just been better at at doing and now I think through COVID, people have sort of seen that. And I, I do feel that's why maybe the XBI is off the lows and I think we'll continue to, to move forward. So that's, that's, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> I don't know if that, that helps answer the question long-windedly. Um, yeah, it, it, it does a bit. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit because yeah. I, I think what we saw certainly over the pandemic was a renewed interest to some extent, driven by the pandemic itself, in terms of your people, you know, the mRNA vaccines, you know, and then you can do not not perfect, but at the same time, they clearly demonstrated that biotech can be make a huge difference. A lot of money flooded into biotech, I think, possibly too much. I don't know, you know, from from an external perspective, when a huge amount of money goes in, people worry about things like bubbles and whatever, and. Do you think there was a bubble valuation? Things were too high, and we're seeing sort of more normal valuations. Or do you think it's just a case of with the economic environment changing a little bit and capital becoming scarce, it's just come off like everything else? It's great, great. I think it's very different depending on where you're investing. So I think on the public markets, the valuations are significantly off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is good value on, on the public markets in biotech. And um, if you can pick out those public companies and know something about the platform, the technology, I think there are a good deals and bargains to be had. Um, on the private side, where our fund operates, we've seen that you know we've we've always had a, a disciplined approach to investing because I've you know, I'm almost I won't mention my age, but I'm always half a century now, and I've seen a few bubbles in biotech, let's just say, and. Um, so we've always been quite disciplined and with a with one eye on are we investing in something that's overvalued and uh, you know should we just chase a deal and et cetera, et cetera. So we've been quite disciplined in the valuations that we have invested as a fund. And obviously we're going quite early and we haven't seen, we didn't really see a massive bubble in the early stage biotech in the UK at least. I think in the US, I've just come back from the US and I think in, in, the, in Boston and San Francisco there have been some inflation around early age valuations for for nascent technologies, but and have they come uh, off with the in the US? Have they come off with sort of the Nasdaq yet, or are they still a bit elevated? The uh, on the Nasdaq, do you mean? Well, so the unquoted companies in the US, so that yeah. their valuations are they still raised from what they were before, or they've come off a, a bit with the Nasdaq? I think they've all come off without a doubt. And it's much easier for now now for us to invest into deals that we want to invest into without getting a big negotiation on if it's the right value or not. So I think it's made it much easier to invest and it's maybe a bit more, you know, we have a bit more of a say in in, in the, the valuation and, and the makeup of the company than uh, maybe we did a year ago when there's so much money flooding and uh, and there's so much overseas capital coming into the into the into the early stage biotech as well. But I think where it has the biggest impact is not really on the early stage. I think it's on those Series B investments where they're maybe looking at the crossover round onto Nasdaq or you know one or two rounds before a listing. I think they're they're the valuations that were really hyper large inflation inflated, and I think they're they're where we've seen significant 
reductions in valuations for investment in the private side. But I think at the early stage, it's always, it's been there or thereabouts, it's definitely come off at the early stage. It's been harder for companies to raise funding for obvious reasons. But that does mean that if you have got capital, you're able to get good deals, good valuations right now and get into the deals that you really want to be in, in on. So and so you, we've got much more choice of what we invest into right now, I would say. Yeah. And and naturally, that raises the question, which looking forward is always kind of hard. But if capital is going to be scarcer, does that require more discernment in terms of thinking about what's going to get funded in the future? Well, I think you've always got to have that discipline approach, whether in you think in a hypermarket or in a, in a in a in a more steady market as of today. Mm-hmm. I think the, the biotech funds are heavily topped up, and so you still see good technologies are still getting funded. So if you have a good company with a good technology and a good team, I think you will raise your money as of today. I think it, what it's harder is that in, in a bubble market or in a, in a hyper market, those things which are maybe borderline, they get funded. And, and some of them you know, may work out and move mm-hmm. forward, but I think that's where the sort of fluff has come off. Um, but I think if you have a good technological platform, the, the funds were raising hundreds of millions just in a year or two ago. Every time I opened up my... LinkedIn, there'll be a new fund raised 150 million, 200 million in biotech, loads of money going in. My daily textbook email was the same. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but, you know, these these companies have to deploy and they may have been sitting on their hands somewhat over the last 18 months or so whilst uh, whilst what's been going on in the markets. But, you know, they still have to deploy those funds or have to give it back to their LPs. And therefore, they are deploying into early stage and, and they will continue to do that. So there's definitely... The other thing I've seen is that uh, the, the venture funds are very much looking much more internal at their own portfolio, looking to support it. So there may be less new deals getting done. But mm-hmm. I think when things get funded, they're funded with larger pots of money. People know that we need to fund these things through the next few years, uh, just in case you know this continues, this market continues, so they have enough cash to see it to the next stage. So, so, I think so, that's, so are um, rounds effectively becoming larger in terms of, you know, because typically in venture, we, we, we talk about funding for, I don't know, 18 months, two years runway, I think, is normal in technology. Maybe biotech, you're nodding your head, so I hopefully that means biotech is about the same. Yeah, Are people same. now saying, well, actually, we want to fund it for, instead of 18 months, maybe we'll do sort of 30 months or or two, three years rather than two? I think the time frame is the same, but I think what it is is they want to make sure that they're add enough value to the company or to the data package, they can, they can move into the more lucrative Series A. Series A. So if you're coming in as a pre-seed or a seed round, you want to make sure that you give the company enough money that they can make it to a Series A. If they make it to a Series A, at least in the UK, you open the door to international capital coming into your biotech, mm-hmm. and therefore you, your, your chances of uh, raising funding at a higher valuation are much, much higher. So I think it's about making sure they can move quickly and fast at that early stage mm-hmm. and they have the capital to be able to do that. And I think that's where you know people need to make sure. I think maybe 18 months ago, you could put a bit of money into company knowing that they get, if they do move it forward a bit, they'll probably raise their money because there's enough capital around that they could do a series, a seed extension and a pre-seed extension, all those things. But um, I think now you need to make sure that it's funded, that you can make it through to a Series A at that in one of those rounds. And I think that's the difference. Yeah. And and you make it sound there like speed of execution has become more important. And I don't know if that's a case of making existing resources more efficiently or saying, well, actually, we'll fund you to hire an extra three staff or five staff or 20 staff. I don't know what this sort of scale is, yeah, so that you yeah. can actually get through that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just need to give them enough 
it's a scientific resource to mm-hmm. be and in, in biotech it's all about a data package generally to generate enough data that they've moved their project drug platform along because we don't just invest in drugs we invest in platforms as well uh, to a stage where they can you know they could have got enough data package that you, that they could go to a, a larger more established usvc or et cetera, et cetera, to raise a significant series a and or in our books to partner with um big pharma because you know even though capital may be scarce big pharma the balance sheets of big pharma are very strong mm-hmm. um and they've you know they've been li- typically uh, hold sitting on their hands somewhat in the last few years because you know they they're saying look, the valuations are so high at some of these things that you know how we, if we put 100 million into it we need to be you know this drug you know i'm sorry a valuation of say 200 300 million that means we're going to have to buy these companies for a few billion uh, to get the venture style returns and it's just mm-hmm. not feasible for them so they have somewhat sat on their hands and i have noted that big pharma are now much more interested than they ever have been before in collaborating establishing relationships investing into supporting some of these uh, biotechnology companies but they feel the valuations are more real now um, and they it fits in with their business models of what they can see they can make from these projects or drugs or companies so i think big pharma is stepping in somewhat and and do they have strong balance sheets still because i hear i hear mixed not you know if you're saying they haven't done m&a that kind of suggests they've been saving up cash but on the other hand, I know a lot of them have been doing strong buybacks and stuff, and and you know, reputationally is perhaps not been the best idea, but financially, it's uh, shareholders seem to like that. So, where, where are where are the big pharma companies in that? Well, I, I just know from the from our portfolio, let's say, mm-hmm. say or, or the companies I see in our ecosystem, they are they are generally partnering more frequently with big pharma, and big pharma um, are very interested in what we're doing. And so, you know, you generally will get an email or a call from Big Pharma. And if you want a meeting with someone quite senior in, in most of them, you know, and I've just come back from Boston, taken you know, a bunch of meetings with the Big Farmers out there. And uh, they're very interested in, in partnering, collaborating with, with portfolio. How they can, not only that, it's the, how can we help you? How can we support you? Because they want to keep the ecosystem alive. And because, you know, we are their pipeline, essentially. Mm-hmm. They have really scaled back all their drug discovery or their early stage research. And they now need to, and they want to partner with the best technologies in the biotech space, best projects or drugs. Uh, and therefore they need to you know, help and support as much as possible. And there's a lot they can do actually, because not only can they provide much needed cash, um, but they have a huge amount of expertise internally. And if you can mm-hmm. partner your biotech with a big pharma, even if it's quite early, I think it can really give you uh, a much higher chance of success given all the resources, capabilities and knowledge that they have that they can support with the, the company and projects. So I think that big pharma are a really key part of our ecosystem. And it's the one thing that no matter what will you know, keep our uh, industry very much uh, in top gear, really. If if big pharma is scaling back in R or has scaled back in R and D the way you talk about, is that a sustainable thing for for, for the ecosystem? Because it naturally makes me think that you talk about the strength of the depth of their expertise. If they're scaling back in R and D, then that expertise is, there's going to be less of that expertise within the company. They, they haven't scaled back. To, I mean, when I say scale back, it's it's, it's you know it's from a very, very large amount to a slightly less large amount. For okay. them, you know, that's significant savings. They still have very large teams of people uh, in research. Probably they've expanded the teams of outreach and scouts to, to find out what's going on and, and to collaborate and partner. And they've allocated budgets to be able to do option deals with the biotech, uh, which is quite interesting for some of our portfolio. 
and or acquisitions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they still have a humongous pool of talent um, in research in big pharma, not all of them, but I would say the majority of the large ones and the mid-size. So in terms of the market, you mentioned about big data. What at the moment do people like for funding, not like for funding? What trends are you seeing within sort of biotech space? Well, I think the most interesting observation is that I think two or three years, a few years ago, 18 months ago even, people were very interested in AI, machine learning, mm-hmm. technology platforms yeah. and how it could change the game of drug discovery or yeah. you know, developing yeah. a drug. And I, and I think we spoke about that quite a bit on, on our previous episodes. Yeah. I think what the, the, the game changer is that when you go to Big Pharma now or to a venture capital company and i've you know i've tried to sort of pitch out some of our portfolio into various on both uh, and the, the feedback from a big farm was sunil please no more wires <laughs> so i said what do you mean they said you know you know big pharma we buy sell drugs we want to see drugs i think there's a move now of like we've seen so much technology and how it can change but we need to see projects that we can work on, put chemistry on biology, proper therapeutic projects, they can evaluate that very clearly. And ultimately, big pharma sell drugs, they don't sell wires. So the big farmers moved that. When I went to a very well-known VC in Boston recently with some of our portfolio, they said, how is this different to the hundreds, just your hundreds of other AI machine learning, etc., startups that we see along the line? So I think there's been this huge swathe of technology-enabled biotechnology companies. Mm-hmm. And I just think there's a, now a move to say, look, we've done that. Let's see who the winners are. Let's see how the investments have gone in can change the game. There will be winners, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, technology is going to have a huge impact on, on therapeutic development. But I think it's a stage of now, okay, let's invest in the projects where we understand that we're developing a drug. It's going to go through a phase one, phase two. We understand the risk profile of that. We can manage the risk in the portfolio accordingly. And we know at the end of it, if it works, we can sell that drug for a market of 10 billion, 5 billion, 1 billion, et cetera. So I think think there's been a move away more into the biotech project side rather than just focusing on uh, the technology and and hoping that will change the world. The second thing is, I think in a a year or two ago, you could invest much more on a famous professor's name or it, it could be very much you know we hope and aim to do something in the space but we're not quite sure now it's very much what we're investing in you know what's the pathway of that product or drug you know at what point will it go into a clinical trial and at what point is it going to hit the mark it's much more focused on the uh, development pipeline and, and portfolio of, a, of a, a drug project as such rather than focusing on very on the space. We, we're interested in that area. Let's put some money into it. I think that, that those days have gone for now. Right. So, so yeah, so, so coming back to the AI thing for a moment. So yeah. in, a, in some sense... I that, knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> so is that in some sense of investment play done in the sense that it's just normalised? It's, it's, you know, it's not that there's no, no more to be done, but kind of the basic sort of establishment is in place. I think th- there are a number of large players out there, I won't mention names, that are very well funded. Some of them are listed. And you have to actually look what's come out of the platforms. And you know, when we evaluate a technology platform, we're very keen to, to understand the output of that platform. Mm-hmm. Are we creating, you know, we invest generally in the platforms where we can create new chemical matter or identify new drug targets. But we're very much looking, okay, 
what's coming out the other end of that platform now are we actually getting before we put significant money to work and a lot of the platforms that have been very 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 well funded in the us and in the uk you know the, the projects that have been in license rather than come from the platform so it's very much you know the platform has had huge amounts of investments but we need to see projects that move through um, development through the platform are we really in the day of at the game of okay you press a few buttons and we're going to have 15 or 20 projects running simultaneously are we at that level or not and well, it, it does seem that, much- that almost creates a problem in itself and that you're saying if you've got 15 or 20 projects that takes quite a lot of funding to push all of those forwards how do you as an investor or or, or how do they in the companies prioritize saying okay you know, because presumably you push the button again, you get another 20 projects and you could easily say, right, we've got 100 things, we can only fund 10. How do we pick those? It's, it's, it's you know, big pharma do that all the time. And and I think it's a kind of a biotech stroke, pure play investor versus a tech pure play investor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could be the dinosaur in the room saying, I don't think it's possible to, to run 15, 20 projects simultaneously, <laughs> you know, having more projects, you know, R&D projects than Novartis, Pfizer and, and Janssen have put together kind of thing. It's just, in, in my brain, it's just, it, it doesn't compute right now, but, you know, maybe I'm the dinosaur and that technology at some point would be able to do that and run these things much more efficiently. And mm-hmm. we probably will get there, but as of today, you have to really rationalize your portfolio, invest in those things strategically, where you, where you feel you've got maximum chance of success. And depending on the size and scale you are, I know if you're an AstraZeneca, you might not want to invest in anything that's going to have a market cap of less than a billion. But if you're a small biotech, you'd be quite happy with a billion pound of sales. So yeah. um, so I think it depends on you know, your portfolio and your size and scale of your company. But you have to obviously, obviously rationalize on what you, and pick your projects carefully. So in terms of the sort of therapies are coming out. Are there any particular areas such as oncology or whatever that are, are you're seeing lots of great progress or is there anything areas that you thought maybe a couple of years ago looking promising and haven't really transpired? I think the, the, the oncology or the cancer space has, has always been very vibrant for biotechs and is continuing to be so. I think more than half the deals that are done for biotechs are in the oncology space. So I think that's always going to be the, the most vibrant so that's, that has continued. I think there are emerging areas which we're going to see some interesting space. For example, we, we've got three investments now in psychedelic companies uh, where you're looking at um, space in the neurospace to, to overcome things like anxiety, eating, eating disorders, depression, etc. And I think that's How quite interesting. How challenging is it still? Because the legislative environment around psychedelics is, as I understand it, progressing, but it still limits a lot of what you can do. Well, I think that, you know, if you develop it as a drug and go through a proper clinical trial, it's just like any other drug that you have to develop and you have to meet certain standards. Obviously, abuse is an issue for some of these psychedelics and will be an issue. But, you know, we have one of our portfolio company that has um, is developing a psychedelic and there's a a kind of an anti-abuse built into it where if you, you know, if you open the capsule, it turns into like a jelly glue. So they've got some patented technology around that. So uh, I think the FDA would like that um, in terms of, um, you know, avoiding abuse. Some of the psychedelics are trying to design the drugs. We've got one where we we know which targets cause psychedelic effect. You know, there's a few targets which which cause that, and they're trying to dial down one and dial up the other, which may, hopefully has a therapeutic effect without mm-hmm. the psychedelic effect. And so, 
you know there is there's a lot a lot of uh, work being done to to try and make uh, these drugs safer less less chance of abuse etc and i think we're still at the very very beginning of that game and i think there will be a number of drugs probably approved over the next few years that will which which will change the game but i think the regulatory authorities just treat it the same way as they do right. any other. So not coming down drug. harsher on this because it's, it, it's pre, you know, yeah, pre- yeah. Pre- you're thinking pre- more maybe if you know if you use something off label or, or etc. But these are you know we invest in projects which go through you know proper you know they have a patent you know you're developing something you're designing a drug and developing it the same way you would do a drug for glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. Okay, and any other areas that are sort of looking particularly promising? You think? Or, or things that might come mature in the next couple of years or five years? Yeah, and we were saying, you know, the, there's a few in our portfolio that look quite interesting. So we have Exonate now, which is about to do a phase 1B clinical readout. That's a company that has a partnership with Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Um, and they're working on um, ocular therapeutics, which I think is quite an interesting niche area. So we have a spin-out from Nottingham that we've just done called Alevin, uh, which is working on... IPF, which is a fairly poorly treated disease right now. What is um, IPF? Idiopulmic pulmonary fibrosis. And it's a disease mainly seen in the elderly. And it's uh, this one's focused on basically lung fibrosis. And, uh, and it may be that this increases because of COVID, but this it may not. This, the research is op- uh, sort of opened on that. But it's an area where I think um, there's two drugs in the market to treat one, a Boeing and a Roche drug, but they they don't work that well. Um, so I think there's huge opportunity to develop something that can work better. This company, Aleven, is developing an inhale version of a, 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 a drug that's targeting AVB to 8, which is an integrin target in the body. Um, and if that is successful, it could be quite significant. There is a competing drug, or I should say, which is an oral, produced by NASDAQ companies, just got phase two data which is positive and therefore it's validated the drug target and so mm-hmm. it could make our drug quite interesting if we can take it forward as a inhaled reduced side effects so it'll go right to the site of the action within the lung does that create so a problem that, for in the sense if you've got something that's already similar ahead of you in the approval game that's a great question so um there are other companies that have been developing drugs for this target so morphic which is an nasdaq listed company was developing a drug for IPF for AV, against this target called AVB to eight, and they did a massive deal with um, Abfi. They got 125 million dollars up front preclinical, but then they, they that didn't move forward, or Abfi didn't move uh, move that forward. And uh, the reason why is potentially there was there could have been some sort of tox issues and some known tox issues with this with a number of projects that have uh, been taken forward for AVB to eight. Now the fact that another company was actually able to show efficacy data in a phase two clinical trial. It shows you that drug target is validated, that if you have the right chemistry or the right drug, you can you know, drug that particular drug target. So that means that um, everything in that space is, is now it's kind of open season, that particular drug target. They obviously still have a way to go through a phase three clinical trial, mm-hmm. et cetera. But if you can show some differentiation to that project, that drug, then I think you, you, you know, obviously you've got a market for that. So, you know, it's our job now as a leave-in to sh- try and show how our drug will be different uh, or better than this other project, which is um, moving forward within an mm. asset listed company. And it's worth hundreds of millions, you know, as a, as a valuation of that company. So, um, you know, it's our job to design something that, you know, may alleviate some of the side effects that they've seen or have a different 
way of taking the drug that will be an oral this drug alevin will be developing will be an inhaled so it can go right to the site of action and hopefully have lost uh, lower uh, toxicity or side effects uh, for the drug so yeah you've got to show differentiation and, uh, and show it's better in some way but at least you know that you can drug the target and it's probably a bet worth taking okay so so so, so basically you're increasing the the odds in, in some sense um, yeah, or, yeah, we've massively increased us. You've shown that it's possible, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's rather impossible, because this is a new drug target. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and how typical is that in terms of sort of the types of investments you do? You know, in terms of if there's a new target or whatever, is that most of what what you're doing, or some of what you're doing, or it's some of what we're doing. We also invest in service companies, so those companies can enable the space. And so we have a comp- uh, investment in a company, Metreon, which we invested into very early on actually, and there were sort of very low revenue numbers, I'm not sure if it's public, but there's low revenue numbers and they've increased that five or six times since we invested. It's moving forward well, they're building the team. So they provide uh, cardiac tox services, biology services to the biotech and pharma industry and they've really grown their client base quite well. So that's a revenue generating business where they're making an EBITDA and uh, and a tip, you know, more of a service company. So we invest in service companies, we invest in biotech therapeutics, and we invest in platform companies where we can use something like technology to enable something to be done faster, quicker, uh, cheaper. So that all three, uh, I would say, are where I think we will get the outsized returns will be from our therapeutics. That's mm-hmm. kind of where we, the knowledge base is really required, the technical input that we put into um, evaluating projects and supporting these companies. That's where a lot of that that base sits, and that's yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. You got these other two areas because so, sometimes what you hear the talk about is investing in the picks and shovels. You know, it's going back to the old image of yeah. you know, the people in Gold Rush who made the money with people selling the picks and shovels. But it, it sounds like the, the the skewness in returns means that they're attractive, but in in a different way. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, you can you can definitely analyze a, bif- a business like that in a different way than you would analyze a drug discovery therapeutic mm-hmm. business. It's very much on the sales team, what you're building. You know, you can see the revenue growth. You get a lot of predictability. You can talk to the clients, see what the feedback is, et cetera, et cetera. So you analyze that business in a very different way to investing in a therapeutic where you may be looking just at data, you're looking at the chemistry, you're looking at the the design of the molecule, you're looking at the guy, and has he developed drugs before, et cetera. So that on the team side, you're looking at that. You're looking at the CEO, can he fundraise or not? Because this company's going to have to continue to raise funding. Does he have the ability, does he have the network to be able to do that? So I think you just have to look at these businesses in different ways. And as a fund, we've worked on both sides of the fence, really. So we've built a service company before, so we know what it takes to build a revenue generating service business. We know how those business work operationally. We know how those business work from a revenue point of view and what it takes from an entrepreneur or a founder point of view to succeed. So when we see a good one, we kind of know it and uh, and we're able to um, very easily and quickly do that due diligence. And there's not lots of them, although it's, the CRO space is very buoyant. It's, it's, CRO again, is? Contract Research Organization. Okay. So that's what they call the service companies into the biotech space mm-hmm. and pharma space. And uh, it's a very buoyant area. There's a, you know, a lot of money going in. There's a lot of amalgamation happening. So a lot of private equity money going in where we can they can buy five, 10 companies, put them together to create one-stop shops for the pharma and biotech industry. So it's a very interesting space. And if you can have, if you can invest in 
you know, niche technologies or niche niche areas where they can grow something. There's very a very good chance they can either list or get acquired um, mm-hmm. over, over five or seven year period, and maybe the time frame with maybe sort of five or six years or so to build something uh, reasonable uh, with a driven team. And with the therapeutic areas, again, obviously it's very very different space to invest in and to time frames are slightly different as well. You need more of a portfolio approach, and mm-hmm. if you work harder, it doesn't mean you. You know, succeed because you have, there's a scientific risk that it just doesn't work out. So it's, it's 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 a different type of investment. But I think having a portfolio approach as a fund is the way forward with these things. So it's very hard, I think, as a individual investor, say, to pick out. Okay, I'm going to do that one and that one and that one, and then that's my portfolio. I think you really it does make sense to have a portfolio approach when um, investing in therapeutics and even in the enablers as well and in the platform companies. And that's why I think that OTFH Ventures has its place in the market as a niche provider. And also the due diligence is quite technical. You know, it's, it's, uh, we have to, even within our own team, if we, you know, if we, it's something that's very niche cancer technology or something very narrow, we, we're able to phone a, a professor or someone in the industry to say, can you help us evaluate this? So we often have to go out to our network to help us evaluate specific technologies. But we know who to go out to because we've been working in the biotech space for well, since that's just, I'm, I'm nearly half century, and, I, and it's uh, I've been in there since I'm early twenties. So, yeah, yeah, I, I know myself. Yeah, you know, I've been a professional investor basically for you know a quarter of a century or whatever. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> um, and you know, and you look great for it, Brian. <laughs> thank you very much. That's very nice of you. But I wouldn't know where to start when it comes to these things. Yeah, you know, I have my knowledge is just you know just. You, I just don't have that specialist knowledge. I think, I think, I think, as you get old, you just know that you know what you don't know. Yeah. And 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 the way the world's moved on, there's such deep technical knowledge out there within the space, and you just have to know. You just have to be real with yourself to say, look, I don't know everything, and uh, and you can never know the kind of technical detail that a professor has been working in this or a a biotech entrepreneur or a CSO that's been working in a particular technology space for the last 15, 20 years. What he knows about or she knows about something, you know, you just have to try to tap into that to help you evaluate and make the best investment decisions moving forward. And if you try and make all those decisions yourself, you know, you're going to make mistakes. So you just have to be real with yourself and say, no, I don't know everything. And uh, you just have to reach out to your network, which we're able to do globally. So that's... Uh... Okay. So putting on your crystal ball, or if you're looking into your crystal ball, we, we, we've spoken a bit about how things are just now, and there's a lot of dramatic about what's going in markets. If we look out, say, five years, you know, we're kind of after the pandemic. How do you see biotech as an industry evolving over the next five years, particularly post-pandemic? Well, you've got different forces. You've got the force of new innovation, new technologies that are coming through, Different modalities, cell and gene therapies, small molecules, ADCs, and you know some of those things which maybe have been difficult to move forward because side effects are ADCs. We're suddenly understanding uh, more about those particular modalities. So I think we'll see a number of new novel therapeutics move through. I still think the money will flow because ultimately it's healthcare. We're not only are we providing. We're trying to make money, but ultimately mm-hmm. we're trying to treat drugs which treat people and there will always be human health issues. So I think the market will always, I think the biggest challenge and the thing we need to be aware of that we will face is that the price of healthcare, especially in the US, is, is very high and uh, they are feeling that. And there will be legislation that will pass over the next few years, I would have thought, that will 
try to curtail or put some pricing pressure on the big pharma, which however is not going to affect in terms of biotech and R&D. So I think that's the thing to be aware of is how governments are going to legislate to put pricing caps on or to allow insurance companies in the US to negotiate with pharma companies in order to reduce the price of drugs. And if that happens, you know, that will have a knock on effect in innovation because that was one thing that, um, you know, takes investment and a longer term time horizon to achieve goals. I, I, I look at the US and, and US health market to me just looks a disaster in so many ways. And I kind of given up reading on it because every time I read it, I just roll my eyes and go, oh, you know, we surely can get this fixed. But it, it seems to me there are, there's genuine issues of price gouging out there. There are people who've got quasi-monopolic positions and they're the, they're the real abuses and they should be curtailed. Curtailing those to me should not stop a biotech getting a decent return on investment. But I guess there's a risk that the legislation goes too far. That's the risk. And, you know, obviously there is a big lobbying force with the pharma companies and the biotech industries that will try to lobby to make sure that they don't, that it doesn't hamper innovation. So I agree that, you know, there are areas where they will need to, they will, they will definitely legislate, but they just need to take it to a step. And I don't know the answer that it was based in, Brian. I don't, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't, know. don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> But, um, you know, that's one thing to just keep one eye on um, in, in terms of longer term time horizon over a five, seven year period. Mm-hmm. I do see and read they're trying to negotiate the bills, et cetera, to make sure that um, innovation can still get funded, can still happen. You know, they put the legislation in the right space. But, you know, people, when they're going into for an election, there are vote winners out there. And we've mm-hmm. just got to make sure that as an industry, we don't um, kill innovation and kill the biotechs off, which um, some of those legislations could, in fact, do. So there is, that's, that's the area to keep up. I, I don't think it will happen because, you know, sense always prevails and there's negotiations that are happening even now. So so I think there is, a, you know, good understanding that they want innovation in pharma con- companies to continue. They want pharma companies to continue to invest. And ultimately, though, us as VCs and as investors and uh, as part of the ecosystem, we're, we're part of it. The big pharma, a humongous part of of, of what we do, and we need them to be successful. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully they will be. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. You answered some of those last time, so we won't go do them all. Okay. But uh, we'll, we'll run through some of these. So what was the most recent publicly announced investing we made, and why do you make it? Well, that was the spin-out we did from Nottingham University. We, um, we, um, we led this whole deal. We... We evaluated uh, this integrin biology space. There's only a small, I think it's 24 integrins that exist uh, in the human body. So it's quite, kind of a focused area. I, I mentioned it. What is an integrin? So it's a, a drug target within the body that um, can have effect in a number of different areas. IPF is one, cancer is another, okay. and other spaces. So it's a, a, an area of biology that um, sits in the cell, integrins sit in the cell membrane and act in the intracellular matrix. So they... Um, it, it has a huge. It can have impact in a number of different diseases. So we invested in a company which had uh, a number of uh, founders. Some are from big pharma. Some are from academia. Just just set below the Nottingham University umbrella. Uh, they've been developing these integrins for for a while, and we spanned the whole company out. We invested from both the SEIS fund and then we invested again from our knowledge intensive fund along with Nottingham University. Uh, so we're the only investor in there right now, and uh, we're trying to 
develop the most advanced project, which is the AV Beta 6, which I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. yeah. for IPF. And we're trying to now evaluate which, how to build a team, but also uh, which uh, de-risking studies we can do to allow us to maybe partner with a big farmer or take it forward ourselves into development. At the same time, we're trying to build the pipeline for some of the other integrins, AVB to eight and others for oncology and other things. Slightly technical there, sorry, but but basically it's it's, it's a great company that I think our our universities have been developing this science, integrins and other ones, and we just keep an eye and tabs on them and we just keep evaluating them. We keep um, talking to them, and at the r- right appropriate time, we try and spin these things out into into separate companies. So that's quite exciting, uh, and I think that that could be one to watch for for to age, but also for for the industry. Um, and it's competing with two other large, I would say, biotech companies in the US. So this is our integral play from the UK. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds very question? exciting. Oh no, that's exciting. Well, <laughs> um, it is what what and why. So you, I, 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 I think I, you've covered it. I think the two companies to watch in the portfolio are Small Pharma, which is a company, a psychedelic company. It's listed on uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, and they will be soon announcing clinical data. So that's one to watch in terms of share price. It could have a quite a big movement of the fund. It's already sort of 20x up or, or so, depending on the share price, even though it's come off a lot. Um, but I think that's one to watch. Uh, if, if the data is positive, that could have an impact. The second one is uh, Exonate, which is running this phase 1B clinical trial with um, in Australia. And uh, they're running that with conjunction with the Anson. The database is currently locked, so we have no sight of the data. So I think that's one to watch in terms of impact on the portfolio. Hopefully, they will, all their trials will go the right way. Yeah, I mean, we've been investing for from the fund for three or four years, but it takes time for these things to come through to the clinic. And you can see that now. And uh, if these are positive, you can see the impact we'll have on patients, uh, which I think is uh, obviously interesting. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it? I always struggle with this question, Brian, but I will just say the area of improvement for the industry and for the fund is how we try and exit some of the things that we do. And I think this is an area where I think, and it comes to your next question, I think, which is how the EIS and the VCTs mm-hmm. can improve in the ecosystem. I think the biggest problem we have is that in the US, they've got NASDAQ to exit on. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I, now I'm encouraging much more of my companies to think about NASDAQ. Now we have AIM, and I think the liquidity in AIM is not brilliant for for the biotechs and we don't really it's not really an exit the liquidity is so poor you know if you try and sell shares you know you impact the share price and you have to you know trade very very carefully etc and so it doesn't it's not really an exit for your biotech so i think thinking I, much I, more I, I carefully, think someone's I, i've had this discussion with one or two investors and they say oh going on to aim is not an exit it's it, it's the route it's the path to the next fundraise yeah and then we've seen that we've had one of our companies by Vitrix, which you know use that to to raise a funding round. So they're 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 on the on the A market. I think that worked very well for them. Mm-hmm. But we need to think much more carefully and push our companies, bridge them into the US to think. You know, our exit routes are really twofold. One is Nasdaq, I think, and the second is acquisition, and probably by Big Pharma or another biotech. And it's very possible for our companies to go on Nasdaq more so than ever before. Uh, but I think we need to get better at that and understanding how to do that. Um, right now, Nasdaq's even closed for all the US biotechs, but you know, there's a good 
you know, reason to give us this pause to understand how we can maneuver our companies in that direction, you know, partner with other funds in the US where they can take it, crossover funds, et cetera. Um, and, and, and the second thing is just really engage much earlier with the big pharma. And, and, and that, I think, will enable us to provide exits into our portfolio. And that's where I think um, as a fund, we need to really think about it and improve more. Mm-hmm. And and coming back to AIM, do you think AIM is just stuck where it is? Or do you, th- do you think that something could be done to make AIM work better for biotechs? If I'm really honest, I think it's stuck. And I'm, and, I, and I'm glass half full on everything in the UK. I know. I know you're so positive. So, <laughs> But I think we're generally stuck with AIM. I don't I know they're there are things that the government can do and levers they can press, you know, releasing money from the pension funds, et cetera, to start investing in these things. And hopefully that will create more liquidity on AIM. I just think we're stuck. <laughs> and, and, and I've, uh, yeah, that's where it is. I'm, I don't know where to, I don't know where it's going to go in terms of AIM and, and, and the liquidity that it can or can't provide. I think either we have to think of the main listings and get more analysts in the sector to analyze our biotech so they can go on the main listing on AIM. People understand them better, get so they invest. We've got such a great investor base in London, you know, equal to, to New York and you know, we just really haven't engaged what the great science we've got in the UK, like absolutely fantastic science that I see here, equal to that in Boston and San Francisco. And our execution capability, given all the big pharma that we've got in the UK, we've just got medicinal chemists, we've got the scientific expertise in their droves in the UK. Our execution capability is lower. We've got great science. There's that last piece of the jigsaw that we need to fix as a country. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's, it's not trivial to fix it, but yeah. It's not trivial. And, I, you know, I'm on obviously various committees and things, and I just, I can't see any, just don't know how it's going to get fixed. And so right now as a fund manager, I just need to say, right, what's in front of me? Yeah. Let's focus NASDAQ's, on that. NASDAQ's the way forward, or the US is the way it's forward. Really, it's really NASDAQ in the US for biotech. I mean, ultimately, that's, that's, that's the only option for a listing, I think, a proper listing. And I think secondly is, you know, engaging much earlier with biotech and pharma to ensure that we can create exit opportunities through acquisitions. And, and a number of our portfolio companies are now doing that, and I think they're doing quite well. There's been a lot of uplifts in the portfolio, um, and I think that in the next few years, exits will come. I don't push the exits, by the way, Brian. You know my style of fund management. I don't say, oh, need an exit. I want to create proper value in our companies. Yeah, they'll come when they come. The exits come. And they come when they come, but you know you just have to focus on generating the value, increasing the revenues if you're going that route, or you know building your portfolio and data package, etc., and let people come for you. And that's where that way you get proper value rather than exiting cheaply. And um, you know I'd like to get some serious exits. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they will come. I think you've probably answered this final question as well. What did you wish you knew when you started with O2H that you know now? It's really hard to raise finance. Mm-hmm. For an unknown fund manager, so even if you have a you're, you're doing well as a fund manager, you've got great portfolio. I think unless you come from a fund management background, I think it's quite difficult to engage the financial institutions into investing. My background is more entrepreneurial, so you know I'm very much in the nitty gritty with the portfolio. That's a bit I enjoy, I love, and I'm probably good at. But I think um, unless you, you know, it's taken me a while to build the track record in the fund management, and I think that's you know we. You know, that's a, a bit I didn't really get. I thought that the industry would engage entrepreneurs who have been exit entrepreneurs, successful exit entrepreneurs, <laughs> into this, into the into the game and you know appreciate the skills that they bring, which I think they do. Um, but I think the the institutions are much more willing to back uh, fund managers, even if they've been part of another fund that maybe hasn't 
you know, perform differentially. It's just kind of, you know, the, the devil you know kind of thing. So I think it's been harder to um, engage and penetrate the, the city, the institutional investors. And, you know, obviously as an EIS fund, it's, it's very much, we are, you know, we're getting money from individuals and I think that's worked very well. But I think now as a fund, we need to think about how we can grow our fund and, uh, and, and build on the great portfolio that we have. 28 companies in portfolio, a number of doing very well, having significant impact. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, uh, we, you know, talk about ESG and other things we've we've out of all the companies 50 percent of our founders and this is not by accident um sorry this is by accident this is by accident <laughs> that 50 percent of our portfolio is um is, is led by female founders or female chairwomen and that's because we just we're, we literally look at the best science and the fact is that that half our portfolio is led by females i think that says something for our industry and the way that mm-hmm. we uh, develop our talent across the board two you know, in terms of the total money that we've bought into our portfolio companies through our investments and the companies that we're involved in, the total is £230 million. Pounds mm-hmm. across it, that's, that's, that's money going into UK Biotech and their companies that we're part of. And, uh, and, and you've you supplied a, sm- a much smaller proportion of that, but you've enabled, I think. Exactly, yeah. And we've led a, a, a lot of the deals and uh, probably around half or so. And, you know, when O2H Invest, because of the limited due diligence capability, um, at that very, very early stage, because the office is a cost of that, people feel com- comfortable investing alongside us. I think that's, and um, we've invested across, you know, with some great funds across the board. Um, we've created, so in our portfolio companies, there's 425 jobs that have been created in the UK in the biotech sector. So I think that we, you know, we, we're definitely having an impact. And I think that we, we want to continue building on that, having and continue to have a greater impact. So, um, all positive, positive, positive. Back to being my positive self. Yes, excellent. That's what we expect from you. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about what you're doing at O2H, where should they go? If you just visit our website, which is o2hventures.com, um, there's, you can download our information memorandum, read more about what we're doing. You can email me and ask me questions and I'm happy to have a chat. And uh, yeah, we're looking to uh, have a next close of our knowledge intensive fund in October. So now's the time to have a look if you're interested. Okay. And we'll post the link in our show notes. So thank you very much for coming on again today, Sunil. I really enjoyed chatting to you and finding out a bit more about an industry I should know more about, but don't. Likewise, Brian. Thanks very much. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.